0: You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you very much for getting up at this ungodly Godly Out. Come and listen to us. Most impressive. Full marks. <laughs> Let me just uh, explain to you uh, what's going to happen. Each of our speakers will uh, just talk very briefly for about three to five minutes on the subject of whether the Internet has ended privacy. And then uh, we will throw open the discussion uh, to the room and we'll carry on, I think, to about 8.30. Um As I said, the subject of this talk this morning is, has the internet uh, ended privacy? As we know, there's uh, a huge amount of information out there uh, about us, uh, what we like to eat, what we like to wear, every journey we ever took on our Oyster card, every time we've ever taken our car in central London, every website we've ever visited. Um, My husband, uh, Misha Glenny, he's writing a book about cybercrime at the moment, is constantly telling me. Um, that I should never write anything in an email uh, that I wouldn't want published in a newspaper. And my God, is that true these days? <laughs> um, uh, pretty terrifying thought. Uh, all those things that uh, our kids write about uh, us on Facebook. I know because this has happened. I've, I've been actually been told by the uh, uh, mother of a fr- friend of my child, I, you know, I... I, I I hear you and Misha had a big argument the other day. It was reported on Facebook. Great. (laughs) Um, So uh, all sorts of uh, information. Let me introduce um, uh, my guests. uh, Derek Wyatt, uh, MP, uh, who is probably uh, one of our most web-savvy members uh, of Parliament. He founded the Oxford uh, uh, Internet Institution in 2002. He was the first politician, he tells me, in the world to have an app. Uh, Andy uh, Hobsbawm, who uh, has been involved um, in running websites on the Internet uh, for 16 years. He's written on these matters for both the the FT uh, and The Economist, and he runs an online financial community. Um, Martin Bright, um, who is... uh, a very seasoned uh, blogger. He wrote a blog for the New Statesman when he was political editor uh, there, and uh, now writes a, a blog for the Spectator. So he tells me that uh, he's been uh, abused uh, from all sides of the political spectrum. <laughs> wow. And uh, Bruno Gassani, um who is the European uh, director of uh, the oh. TED conference, um, and. Um, For anybody who hasn't been to the uh, TED website and looked at uh, some of the fantastic uh, talks that there are online there, I would thoroughly recommend it. Bruno has written uh, two books on this subject and started three uh, internet companies. Well, I'm going to um, ask Derek to start because uh, he was down here first and is therefore the most awake in the room.
1: (laughs) Well, good morning, everyone. Here are some uh, interconnected and disconnected thoughts at this time of the morning. The concept of a nation-state, the idea of a nation-state, is quite new. It goes back to 1604 with Cardinal Richelieu and Henry IV. Hold that idea of the idea of a nation-state, because I'm going to come back and forwards with that. In in the revolutions in the 18th century in France and the War of Independence uh, in America, there was a shuttling diplomacy with Benjamin Franklin and Tom Paine and the Rights of Man and incorporating into a constitution, which we don't have in this country, basic things. Uh, one of which, of course, is, is this freedom issue, which and the amendment to it uh, in the constitution of America. So hold that. Probably the most interesting book, though, of the 18th century was Rousseau's Social Contract. So let me just paraphrase that in, in 10 seconds, if I can. The idea was that the citizen gave to the state his individual freedom and privacy, and in return, the state gave it back in abundance. And for Rousseau writing, he's a Geneva, a Swiss-French man writing uh, about the French, French Revolution. His idea was that what were the freedoms? And the freedoms were the freedom to live as you are now. So you needed a police force and you needed good law. And a freedom not to be invaded, so you needed a navy or an army. So is that social contract still the same today? And does it, does it apply online? So h- hold that. Jump now to 1945. 1945, there were no nation-states in the Middle East. There were hardly any nation-states below the sub-Sahara. So the idea of a nation-state is relatively new. Now, in 1949, China was not recognized by America. Formosa was. Barmy. Hold that. In 1945, though, we created the following institutions. United Nations, World Trade Organization, the IMF and the World Bank. They were the victors. They were the spoils of World War II. They weren't for the world. We still have them today. Hold that. Netscape in 1995 changed the internet. In the first internet bubble, which finished 10 years ago, somebody called Charles Ledbetter wrote, he thought, but what the internet could do was actually end the nation state and create create virtual nation states People said at the time, what on earth are you talking about? But actually, the more I get away from that, the more I think he was right. And that was before Google, Facebook, Twitter, Bebo, and so on. So is, is the concept of the nation-state changing? And if it is, where do we put privacy into it? Now, just look at some of, one or two issues of privacy In behavioral advertising, you don't know this, but you have given your intellectual property away to Google and Facebook and Netscape and God knows what, because you've ticked the little box that says, do you agree to this? And because there's 59 pages attached to that and you haven't read it, you just say confirm or accept, and you've given your rights away. Now, I don't think that's what you should have done. Now, we've all done it, but how on earth do we bring it back? Now, I think it's up to politicians to start to think about having an opt-in or an opt-out. The moment, you know, we can't opt-in. We we, we should opt-in. At the moment, we have to opt-out. And that is a raging, in the Senate, it's a raging debate. It isn't, unfortunately, a raging debate in the United Kingdom. So, um, as you saw on, I think, one of the comments on the television was, should we start to negotiate ourselves? And I think that's where... We're beginning. So are we going back to fundamental human rights? Are we going back to the rights of man? Are we going back to the social contract? I kind of think we are. And then secondly, something's happening quite profound, which you probably heard of but don't understand, called cloud computing. Very soon, the G cloud, which is the government cloud, may be held, may be held in South Korea. It might be held in Thailand. It might be held anywhere. Well, you don't know that. Your rights are going to be held on the national health or on the works and pensions somewhere else because it's cheaper to have them somewhere else. No-one's asked you for this, but this is going to go on. This is a sort of £50 billion programme over the next 10 years to go for thin computing. We've had no public debate about this. So your your documents that you hold may not be held in this country. So under what legislature will they be held under if something goes wrong? And what if Al-Qaeda then says, actually, all we really need to do is just take the cloud computing servers down? Then we're all buggered. So... What rights have you given away to your state to allow them to do this without even a vote in the House or a public debate? So hold that. Back to 1945. The four world organisations are sclerotic. How on earth could they possibly be right and fit for the 21st century? So where do I, where do I as a citizen go to get my privacy back? Where do I argue for my IP? Where do I have this debate with cloud computing? It's no good having it in my parliament, because this is a global thing. So where are we going to take the issue? And I'm, I'm struggling. In the G20, if you follow any of the G20, they never talk about IT ever. There's never once been a major... There's once. Once in 20 years, there's been one debate on IT. Then we had the conversation yesterday where um, Lord Patton said it's the G2. Well, the G2 have completely polarised ideas on, the, on IT. And the one thing with the Google problem that you had in January, was Google didn't actually tell anybody they were going to do what they've done. And now it's quite hard for America to do anything about that. So you would have thought Google, the best, the most sophisticated, apparently, has done an own goal of the most amazing... I can't understand how it's, how it's happened, but they've done it. But they hold, our, they hold all our data without your permission. Well, actually, that's not true. You've ticked the box. So where are we going to have this debate on privacy in the world? How are we going to have it? And I'm beginning to feel that the human rights law should apply online as well as offline. And I think that's where we've got to put our energy over the next five years. Thank you.
0: A lot of food for thought and a lot of thoughts to hold there. So I hope you're all holding them. <laughs> Andy.
2: Um, I was agreeing with quite a lot of the things that were said in the video um, over a decade ago, a uh, chap called uh, Scott McNeely, who founded a company called Sun Microsystems, which is now uh, becoming part of IBM, uh, famously said something that was quite controversial at the time, and he said, uh, you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. And I think it's a fair point, really, because whichever way you look at it, modern communications and, and civilization makes it impossible, really, for people to lead private lives. It's really another nasty byproduct of our process of economic and technological development. Unless today, unless you choose to live off-grid, so to speak, your privacy has essentially been abolished because every transaction that you have with the outside world goes through information networks, which means that it's no longer secure. As was said in in the video, it's it's technically it can be accessed, and access to confidential databases is so widespread that there's no point in saying this shouldn't happen, it's, it's happening. So the, the question is, how should it happen? And I think the best we can hope for is to make the people who are trading in that data, personal data, uh, accountable for its fair use. I don't think anyone planned it this way, apart from a few governments, I guess, um, but it's, it, it's, it's a fact of life. And I think uh, in privacy terms, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle and uh, its medical records are being auctioned on eBay. The situation is unlikely to get any better because the problem is that uh, there's a couple of reasons for this. It, it makes sense for governments and businesses to keep this, this rather complex issue fluid and flexible, so it suits them to do that. Um, and only really a few hardcore politicos and, uh, and geeks actually understand the extent of the issue and, and understand about the full implications of privacy and data. It's a lot easier to mobilize public opinion to uh, save the whale than it is to protect your personalization data, partly also because it affects people individually rather than en masse. And I think privacy is something that um, people really only miss when it's not there. It's not something that people notice unless there's some event that, that suddenly compromises it. We've got another issue today, which is, um, you know, you talked about at the beginning, which is the sort of Facebook generation. So there's a, there's a new generation of people for whom the idea of, of uh, privacy in, in the traditional sense is no longer true. It's disappearing as a social norm, this desire for privacy. And people are broadcasting pretty much every detail about their private lives voluntarily, which raises very different different questions about privacy because if, you, if you're voluntarily abolishing privacy, then obviously a lot of the normal uh, situations about what happens if that's compromised uh, is very difficult to apply because it's, it's given willingly uh, and, and far more willingly than a, than a sort of a tick box, if you like, that people might not understand the implications of. I think that beyond that, um, this new generation are willing to trade. They're willing to broker their privacy in return for personalization. So people are actually... Uh, starting to ask, why can't people do more with all the information that I share freely? Why can't you give me more relevant services and and valuable uh, social information and more intelligent personalization? Because I'm telling you all this stuff on the internet all the time, and I'd rather it was used for good effect. A a final thought is that as the internet becomes ever more integral to to people's sort of social spheres, it's going to become uh, unimaginable, the amount of personal data that will be online. Um, Something at a TED conference recently, there was a, an American company called Blippy, which uh, makes all of your credit card data uh, available. It automatically streams, if you sign up to the service, it streams any credit card transaction that you make automatically into your social network so everybody sees what everybody else is spending their money on, which, you know, I think sounds quite horrendous probably to everybody in this room certainly does to me on the other hand there's clearly a new generation to whom this is actually valuable social data I think there was about a million dollars a a week or something being transacted through their systems so what what the difference is between what becomes valuable social data for one group and what's a a, you know complete transgression of privacy for another is I I think actually a question of uh, social norms and so I predict we'll probably see in the next 12 months some sort of major privacy event where someone like Tesco online or or um, uh, Amazon or Facebook is going to get hacked. And uh, this will sort of raise people's consciousness about the issue of privacy and, and their identity online. And it will become much more central to people's choices of brands and services. And everyone will need to figure out where they sit on this spectrum of private and open and, and how that fits with the social norms of the day. Um, uh, there's already sites like Suicide Machine, which allow you to put in your login details and they will delete every profile on every social network. So it sort of allows you to commit social suicide online, if you like. And I think there'll be more services like this, which will allow people to, if you like, uh, not just uh, delete everything, but gracefully go dark uh, when they want to, to disconnect and to become private. Um, And finally, there's a site you may have heard of called uh, pleaserobme.com, which... um, was set up to highlight some of the issues of uh, of privacy, and it, particularly what it does is it broadcasts in real time. Anyone that logs into a location-based social network like Foursquare or broadcasts their location on Twitter, for example, someone tweets at Port Merion, at conference, uh, enjoying breakfast talk, um, that will be broadcast in real time. So if anybody... Uh, is interested in who's uh, not in their house, that's where they can go to find, <laughs> find it out. Um, so I think it's a nice, nice sort of way to end. It summarises part of the risks. If you're, if you're interested in telling everybody at all times where you are, then it also highlights where you're not, which includes your house.
3: <laughs> Andy, thank you very much. Martin? Uh, yes, I thought I'd tell a couple of tales from uh, the world of journalism um, and what happens and what has happened over the last few years uh, when you're a journalist and uh, you go online and you become very much public property. Um, now, there are a couple of people in the room who will know what this is like, um, and I don't ask you to pity us, um, but it's quite an interesting example of what happens when you, uh, when you trade your privacy for a limited amount of public profile. Um, I thought I'd tell two little stories, one of which allows me to swear a lot, um, And the second one allows me to show you a secret document. So in both ways, I hope you're excited by this. Um, uh, The first one um, was quite a long time ago, uh, it seems now. Iraq War, 2003. Just before the Iraq War, um, I did a story for The Observer uh, about a young woman called Catherine Gunn, who worked at GCHQ, who leaked uh, an email from uh, a top-ranking intelligence officer from the States called, rather mysteriously and wonderfully, Frank Koza. And uh, Frank uh, was uh, politely asking his British counterparts in GCHQ to help spy on the UN uh, and to try and fix uh, the vote in the UN to get a second resolution. Um, When I published this, uh, the next day, uh, Matt Drudge, the right-wing, um, uh, internet kind of um, man, uh, propagandist, um, uh, put my story up on, on the internet, noticed that some, someone in the observer offices uh, had put a spell check on uh, the secret document and said all the spelling was in English, uh, English, English, UK English rather than American English, uh, and so uh, decided this must be a fake. So... I woke up uh, on Sunday uh, to the following messages. Uh, Liberal, Euro, trash, chicken shit, f-ing homo. Um, you're a lying piece of shit. Um, and uh, in one case, and when I realised, in fact, this was one of these kind of chain reaction things, was uh, in one case, uh, uh, someone said, my wife thinks you're a lying piece of shit. Um, uh,
4: this
3: kind of went on, and uh, it was, um, sorry, I've got it up here because I, lo- I just love this so much, this, 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 this kind of this extraordinary reaction. Yeah, the best one was, uh, hey, dickweed, uh, we all know that you are full of shit. There you go. <laughs> um, you, you know what free people say now about Neville Chamberlain is what they will say about you and your ilk soon. War is coming and coming soon. It will bring freedom to Iraq and real peace in our time. Now... Uh, This guy, kind of, I I emailed him back and said, "Um, well, you know, I hope you're right. Um, And uh, he immediately emailed back and said, oh, gosh, I'm really sorry. Uh, That was a little bit harsh, wasn't it? Um, Now, now, what I think is that we are yet, I mean, that was kind of relatively early days. I think we're yet to realize what we've unleashed when we go public. Um, We haven't really worked out the rules of the game yet, and certainly we haven't worked out the rules of of, of courtesy um, and uh, I mean the implications here are I think uh, interesting I mean sometimes such is the kind of intensity of feeling towards me from the great often anonymous public out there uh, that I kind of wonder whether I've got an identity at all really um, the second thing I wanted to show you in this sort of show and tell session is a is a document I hope this is going to work because it's very early in the morning Okay, this is a very exciting thing. It's a secret document uh, from, as you can see, the Security Service, otherwise known as MI5. And rather excitingly, at the bottom it says, Libyan Intelligence Service Activity in the UK. That's good, isn't it? It's very exciting. Now, um, can we publish this? Uh, published this when I was uh, on the Observer and um, using uh, a site in the States that some people on this panel will be aware of called Cryptome, uh, which is a site that uh, essentially... is is run by a freedom of information fundamentalist uh, who will publish pretty much anything. Now, um, obviously, I'd like you to be impressed by the level of uh, documentation that I can get out of the intelligence services, but this isn't really the point uh, that I want to make. What was interesting about this was that um, in order to get around Britain's secrecy laws and not be prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act, um, this had to be published in the States first. So, I won't tell you how, because it's uh, illegal, but um, we managed to get this to the American website, and it went up. Uh, and we then asked this American website to tip us off uh, about uh, when it would be going online, when it would be going live. Uh, and we, um, we would then write the story uh, and, uh, our, in advance of our competitors. Now, between the time that it went live for us with a private URL that allowed only us at the Observer to see it, before it went live to the world on the uh, on the Cryptome website, uh, this document was—and sorry—the the, the gap there was a matter of minutes. Um, that document, online with this secret URL, was accessed by um, a school in California. Uh, the Open University, uh, several companies across the world. And, um, I mean, I know David Aronovich is here. I don't want to come over like a conspiracy theorist here. But it was a very, very chilling and revelatory moment when you realised that, uh, you realised just how much and how quickly um, the intelligence services can get your information and uh, to the extent of having a series of um, (laughs) effectively, um, a series of fake um, access points across the world that were made to look like universities, made to look like schools, made to look like companies in order to get into information uh, if they need to. So uh, where do we go from here? Um, My feeling is that I mean that was when that happened. That was uh, about eight years ago. I don't think we realise anything like we, don't, we have. We have no idea um, just how open uh, our private information is once we decide to trade in our privacy for what we hope to gain from what's out there on the internet. I don't think we've begun on a personal level, on a very um, day-to-day individual level i don't think we have we have really um done the basic work to develop the rules of the game from uh courtesy uh through to um uh, an understanding of the social contract that we've 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 been hearing about so um do we know what we're doing do we know what
4: we're unleashing uh i don't think so
0: martin thank you bruno
4: Thanks. Good morning. Uh, well, many of the things I wanted to, to mention have been said or touched upon, but let me just make four points. Um, first of all, it's clearly privacy is not a choice anymore. It's, not the, it's no longer the default setting of, of, of life. We get our first database entry when we are born, uh, weight, height, age, uh, uh, gender, name, Uh, Hour of of birth Uh, Sometimes even before we are born With parents publishing on their blogs The the, uh, ultrasound scans of their uh, Story uh, Girl or boy uh, Weekly update uh, On on the blog And then from then on Everything we do basically as a database entry Uh, The issue is really that we have gone From a society of records Mostly paper records To a society of databases And I'm not sure that people really understand what a a, a database means and and, and what it means over the long term. Um, Second point, in an ideal world, uh, data would be kept safe and it would be kept separate uh, and uh, used only for the purpose for which they've been gathered and uh, for which they've been uh, given. Uh, but this is not an ideal world, and the reality is that we are kind of trusting uh, a fantasy when it comes to, to data uh, stored in computers. Data are not safe. You know it well here in the UK. I, I live in Switzerland. We have a slightly different situation. But uh, uh, you know how much public, uh, private data has been leaked to the public or found its way accidentally to the public uh, in the last uh, few years. And data are not separate either. Uh, once they're in a database, they're easy to mix and link and aggregate, uh, and uh, and mesh and uh, that generates a different level of, uh, of problem uh, the third thing is they don't go away uh, you can delete a file from your computer you can delete your website you can completely delete your blog there are still uh, copies uh, of it in many different uh, places and those uh, elements uh, remain and uh, there are also data that uh, apparently go away because they're not used. Companies and governments and organizations are storing vast amounts of data. They, they don't know how to use right now, uh, in the hope that down the road, they will find a way to, to use them and exploit, uh, exploit them. And even those that are given willingly, uh, Andy pointed out several examples, uh, before, uh, once they're out there, they no longer relate really to me. Uh, and, uh, my situation may change over time, and uh, there is no way to recall those data. Right now, uh, I am one of the hub, uh, hubs of the, of the TED community just because of the job I have, but maybe my next job, uh, I will want a more private kind of situation, and uh, I can't just recall whatever has been written about me or posted about me or posted by me uh, in, uh, in my current uh, incarnation. And this is worrisome, particularly because of the development of search technology. Right now, you cannot go online, call up a site, and ask the question, give me the most embarrassing thing about this person. But in 10 years, you will be able to do so. And there will be 25 years of stored online data uh, behind that system uh, that uh, can be searched through artificial intelligence and, uh, and things uh, like that. Uh, but these are all things that kind of relate to to us individually or to small groups, and uh, uh, and they're not really the big issue for me. I think that what really worries me uh, is not that we are all individually stripped down of. But basically, we're all naked already, and we'll be more and more so. Uh, what really worries me is that uh, the real destruction of privacy uh, may come by accident, and this is what I mean. Uh, Right now, we are storing huge amounts of data in databases all around the world. And when we talk about databases, we don't need to just to think about you know, long listings of figures. A blog is a database, a website is a database, your online mail system is a database. Uh, if you have a Gmail or a Hotmail account, those are all databases. Uh, and uh, the, the real trouble will come when those systems break down, either by accident, by ROM manipulation, Uh, by a successful hack uh, or or other uh, reasons. Think just of what would happen if even just for a few hours uh, the Yahoo Mail or Gmail or Hotmail servers are publicly accessible. Uh, So everything you have ever written bad uh, about your boss or your wife will be out there. All the files, confidential files from your company that you emailed to your private account so you could read them At home at night, we'll be out there. Uh, Public political, uh, private political discussions will be out there. Uh, This is no longer just an issue about, you know, I may be hit personally. This is an issue of a potential breakdown of society, breakdown of trust, uh, revealing information that has been uh, kept and is very embarrassing uh, beyond the specific person and and so on. And that may happen by. Let's say by accident, basically. Uh, we're just preparing the conditions of a big accidental uh, destruction of privacy that may have social consequences rather than just individual consequences.
2: This week or last week, Facebook, there was a bug in Facebook and uh, strangers got people's private emails. So exactly that happened. People's, some of them were very, very private, personal conversations and they just got randomly uh, emailed to people who they didn't know.
0: There was also a very interesting case last week um, in Italy, which I'm sure most of you read about, where three directors of Google were sued for invading the privacy of uh, a young autistic boy who um, was filmed being bullied by some of his classmates. The video was posted uh, up on a Google site, a precursor to YouTube, and stayed there for two months. I think it was a very popular site. Now, Google has said they're going to appeal this, um, because this has very profound implications for freedom of information uh, on the Internet. And it raises some very interesting questions, um, I thought, uh, uh, vis-à-vis what you were um, talking about, Derek, about um, our, our rights um, as, uh, uh, as individuals to privacy, mm-hmm. but also our desire as a society to have as much information out there uh, o- o- on the Internet. And I don't wonder what you thought about that particular case.
1: Well, Google's been... Uh all over us like a rash this week. For the very first time, they want the help of politicians. It's extraordinary. I mean, they're the biggest organization probably in the world Mm -hmm. online, aren't they? Um, And they're out of their depth because they haven't put the the, uh, work in either uh, either at the State Department, uh, which didn't know anything about the China thing, uh, and this thing either. They haven't briefed us. They haven't done anything. So they've been in the House a lot this week. But to answer your question... We have been saying for a while, why aren't the ISPs treated like radio spectrum or television and that they have a license and that the license has a charter attached? But we have been told that's just, you know, awful idea. It's dreadful, but I can't see what's wrong with it. I'm struggling to understand why shouldn't we actually say in our culture, these are the things that we value. And if you then carry stuff, well, we take you off. Whereas at the moment, the digital bill going through is going to send a threatening letter to the dad or the mum who has the email account in her house. Well, bless, but that's an absolutely bloody stupid idea. Um, but of course, that's to do because the music world has lobbied successfully to say, help us. But actually, if you look at the multi-million pound music world, what's it spent on this? Nothing. What's, what's Hollywood spent on this? Hardly anything. They want the politicians to resolve it, and it's kind of difficult. But I think this is, this is a really interesting case, and if it goes all the way to the European Court of Human Rights, well, we'll it'll, it'll then change the world of what an ISP is. So Google clearly will mount a huge challenge.
0: Now, who would like to uh, come in on this discussion, this early hour of the morning?
5: Good morning, everybody. I'm definitely not from Google. My name's Darcy. Um, I just wondered if uh, you had an opinion around... How much of this problem is because, as society, we expect many things for nothing? And one of the challenges with these companies is that they're, they want to make money from this and we're not prepared to pay for the service. So the way they do it is through advertising, gathering our data, you know, selling it on, et cetera. So how much of this is because society wants too much for nothing? Andy? Oh,
2: yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that that's particularly connected i mean there's obviously a relationship there to the extent that if you if you have a trade with I, i think it's a fair argument to say if if the economics of businesses depend on them uh selling marketing data in some shape or form then they're going to be incentivized to collect more marketing data which may involve more private information being traded but i think that sort of happens Anyway, I think regardless of whether people charge or don't charge, I think, yes, it might turn the dial up a bit. But I think the issues we've been talking about are sort of independent of that. They're actually uh, partly cultural, but, but primarily they're sort of technological and they're, they're part of the, as I said earlier, the way that our economy and our society has developed. And they're all sorts of byproducts of that. And one is simply that data about everything exists and is therefore accessible. And I think what we're now seeing is these sort of social shifts on top of that, where, I mean, it's interesting, you know, medicine is one very fascinating area because medicine is an area where there's enormous amounts of data which is gonna pour out of these new devices that will monitor and track everything we do in real time to give us sort of personal health reports and, and, and lead to a lot of preventative medicine by, by tracking what you're doing and curing you before you develop symptoms. And I think a lot of people will be quite happy for personal medical information to be shared if they get a benefit from it, if you can get a sort of your genetic marker matched with someone else that might help you solve a medical issue. Uh, so I think privacy depends on context as well. And so as the social norms shift, um, the, the issue shifts along with it.
1: Derek, I'm uh, struggling to remember who wrote the long tale. Was it Chris Anderson? Thank you. Well, he's just written another book called Free It. I don't know whether you'd read it, actually, because it does, it does put a new paradigm down as to how we're going to make money on the net for free. It's a challenging, challenging book, so I think you've touched a real nerve.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the problems is that um, the, the Internet has allowed us, them, us and them, you know, the man and us, um, to do stuff without thinking about it, to do stuff and then kind of see what happens, um, without realising, without actually even thinking about what the implications might be. So you kind of think, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could just like publish lots of uh, lots of videos of people and then they kind of come and look at it and, oh, yeah, great, and that, that kind of takes off. And then you think, oh, my goodness, what happens if you know, we put up a... A, a video of a happy slapping of an autistic boy. We might get sued. Oh, dear, well, we better think about that in the courts. Similarly with newspapers, um, wouldn't it be great if you could just have this massive archive of everybody's, of everybody's work and it would be there and everybody could look at it and it would be fantastic it would be a new age of publishing and then, oh, uh, actually, we have just destroyed our industry. Um, that's a shame. Um, now, uh, and I think that's a problem, and I think these things will. I mean, unfortunately, I think these things will be sorted out in the courts. Um, in the newspaper industry, it is going to be very interesting when the first journalist or blogger sues his own newspaper, his or her own newspaper, for allowing defamatory material to be posted in the comments pages of, of newspapers. We love it at the moment. It looks very democratic and it's great and everybody can go online and anonymously call you know, uh, David Aronovich uh, a neocon and uh, you know, uh, Yasmin Alibi-Brown uh, an Islamf- uh, Islamophile kind of friend of terrorists, um, but actually, there is going to come a time where people are going to buy it back and people are going to say, well, I'm sorry, but I really don't want this stuff said about me, please. Uh, there used to be a time in journalism uh, when you had a letters page editor and they stopped the kind of green ink lunatics uh, from, uh, from getting published in the paper. Uh, and now they have free licence. And uh, there, are, there is going to be a moment uh, when it actually ends up being sorted out in the courts. So it's, it's a shame, but I think it's the only way.
6: No, I think um, Martin's quite right about the... Um Abuse, really, <laughs> the kind of culture of abuse that we're now supposed to live with. But I was really interested in if the world is as open as all of you have expressed, then how come there are all these pockets? Because, you see, we it's not easy to assume that we're all for absolute privacy. I really want to know what's going on in those Swiss bank accounts. Who's depositing money from which African country, for example, or... The funding facilities of the Tory party, which we still don't seem to really know, unless it's out there on the blogs and I mm. haven't looked. So it seems to me that we're still, the, the, the powerful are still able to keep information, which even those of us in this room who are worried about privacy would quite like to bust open.
0: I think there was a case recently, well, Bruno would know about this, about a bunch of hackers going into Swiss bank accounts and finding all the German tax evaders and no. offering to sell the information to the German government, They, were, the they weren't,
4: weren't exactly exact hackers, but yeah, <laughs> but there's the story. Uh, now, you're right, there is a lot of information we would like to have and we still don't have, uh, mostly because this is a, a phenomenon that's really at the beginning, uh, and mostly because... Uh, Some of the systems are really uh, still well-protected. The the case of banks is interesting because banks here, as well as in Switzerland where I live and and other countries, are constantly under attack, and they lose data every single day. You just don't hear about it. You don't hear about it because they don't announce it. Uh, It's not in their interest to let people know that they're losing customers' data. Uh, You hear it uh, only when uh, things happen like... uh, a disgruntled employee makes a copy of a file and then goes to the German fiscal authority and says, well, here is a city with you know, the names of German people hiding money in Switzerland. you want to buy it. And the Germans actually do because it's not illegal to buy this kind of, of data in, in Germany. Uh, it's a bit different in France where another case has happened. Uh, and so, so these data are kind of circulating anyway and uh, assuming that they are – Uh, completely protected is is, uh, no longer really the case. Uh, They don't make it to the front pages of newspapers except in specific cases for for now. Uh, One of of the main reasons uh, of this, I I think, is uh, uh, it really has to do with uh, still the existence of physical borders. Paradoxically, uh, the Internet is supposed to have broken down barriers, particularly geographic borders uh, between and among countries. But then when you cross a border, you enter into a different legal system, and that's what keeps some of those data still uh, protected. And that's why some data are stolen in Switzerland and released in Germany and not in Switzerland, because the legal system is is different. Uh, But we are moving slowly beyond this kind of of barriers and and breaking them down over and over. Uh, So my guess is you will will soon know. Soon is years, it's not days, but you will soon know this kind of things, and there will be no way to keep them private anymore.
1: Well, I think philosophically I'm with you, Yasmin, but in cloud computing, how will you get access legally if the data is not held in your own country, which it won't be? Yeah. So God knows where we are then. Who are you going to sue? And how do you protect them legally, right? Right, well, now, we the, just,
4: you right, right now, anything you, you post on Facebook is stored in a server in the U.S., which means that it's accessible by the U.S. government under the Patriot Act, although you live in the U.K., right?
7: Paco Underhill who has been crucified numerous times on this issue on the pages of television and uh, print over the past 15 years A couple of thoughts here. First of all, online, the protocols of Zion and the Psalms of David hold equal weight meaning that the net is a way of better disseminating train schedules than it is actual real information that uh, we are infinitely better at collecting it, however corrupted it might be in the first place than we are figuring out what to do with it and that ultimately one of our protections to it, personally, may be posting enough false data as it may be so that the corruption is there and inculcated on the net to start out with so that as people search for intelligence that they start to realize that maybe it may not be true after all.
4: Uh, Can I I, I make a comment? Paco, you're totally right about this. And actually, one of the interesting things that's happening now is that there is this kind of underground culture of uh, screwing up with data. Uh, But to do do that, you need to be conscious of what what data means, right? And uh, this goes from uh, very simple examples like... uh, uh, people using the status update on Facebook or the Twitter updates just to say wrong things. They are in their office and they say, I'm on the train to uh, Manchester, uh, and things like that. Or uh, swapping uh, uh, miles cards and fidelity cards. You know, the, the cards uh, that you use at the grocery store, I you use it on Monday, I use it on Tuesday, She uses it on Wednesday, and the data are completely scrambled uh, because you cannot create a profile anymore out of, of those data and things like that up to uh, creating fake profiles and mixing them up with, with others and linking to fake friends and, and things like that. This takes time and takes energy and it takes you know, a, a kind of clear consciousness of what you're doing, clear understanding of how the system works but there is a, a growing culture of, of, uh, of uh, basically trying to screw up with data mm. well, to, to
3: answer both points in a sense, Yasmin's point um, th- first Um, I do think it's interesting that um, we, again, I don't think we've thought through where the balance is here, but um, it is the case that sites like Cryptome uh, and Wikileaks, which uh, are there, um, uh, I believe, um, to um, help the individual, the the small person, to get information that uh, governments and big corporations are trying to keep from us. uh, And they are constantly under attack. Uh, legally, and uh, Cryptome t- closed down last week. I see it's back up because I've managed to access it. Um, WikiLeaks uh, closed down several weeks before that. Uh, these sites are constantly under attack, and, of course, there's a, uh, there's a move that we haven't talked about at all recently, which is the uh, idea that's being floated in Iceland of attempting to rescue uh, Iceland's uh, uh, pride <laughs> Uh, after the collapse and also possibly even its economy by creating a kind of Switzerland of information in Iceland where people uh, that are running sites like Cryptome can find a haven. There will be consequences there, of course, because of course, the thing about these freedom of information sites is because they are so fundamentalist, um, almost anything can be posted on these things. Um, and um, you know, to, come to, uh, sorry, to come to the, the <coughs> second point about posting false information... I think the difficulty is that such is the power of the cloud such is the, 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 such is the power of the of the crowd as well as the cloud um, that it becomes very easy for um, misinformation to be spread about individuals and it is very very difficult to fight back against the the, the numbers of people that are spreading false information so um, it may be that uh, when I write on the New Statesman site. I am represented as a uh, kind of uh, neocon, um, Islamophobic, uh, kind of right-wing Zionist mess. Uh, when I write on the Spectator, um, when I write on the Spectator, I am a kind of hopeless uh, socialist utopian. Um, these two kind of myths about me, neither of which are true, uh, get traction. Are uh, spread around the internet by by uh, people that are opposed to my particular view, and they stick. They stick, and so. Uh, you see, for instance, I mean, in in my case, I often see the phrase uh, Martin Bright, the self-confessed Islamophobe, and this this does the rounds around the internet. And how you fight back against that kind of misrepresentation uh, by simply spreading further misinformation about yourself, I don't quite see how that would work.
2: I just want to, it was something you said earlier, Martin, I just wanted to pose a bit of a counterpoint. I think I think there's quite an interesting question about whether or not one thinks you should consider uh, very carefully what you do before you do it or after. And I, I just worry that I, I don't think there would be enough progress in that, and it's a very loaded word, if every time you thought about trying to do something new, you, you, you thought about it very carefully before to decide whether it was a good idea the whole sort of process of sort of creative destruction wouldn't really have happened. And, uh, you know, would we have invented steam if the sailing lobby had sort of said, well, hang on, let's think about this. Um, And I I think, you know, the fact that industries might become obsolete isn't really, you know, necessarily, there isn't necessarily a God-given right for industries to exist in their current form with their current economic structures. It just may be that's the way they evolved historically and there'll be a different one in the future. And I just worry that I think if, you know, the vested interests are so powerful to protect the the status quo or the, 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 you know, uh, somebody said once, the milk of disruptive innovation doesn't flow from cash cows, that you won't actually get innovation if unless you really invent things and then sit back and figure out, well, what's working and what isn't, even though that may have some painful consequences.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was an observation rather than um, uh, a suggestion there should be a sanction or that we should somehow kind of um, uh, dis, uh, disinvent the Internet. It was just that actually things are going so quickly now that we end up yeah. you know, running away with ourselves. It's just this it, is just an observation.
8: I'm Ellie and I work for Editorial Intelligence. I wanted to ask about social media and um, the values that are becoming norms for teenagers and 20-somethings particularly. Um, two things, first of all, with, you were talking about embarrassing histories before and it's becoming so entrenched to um, just young people. Liz Forgan said in the video that, yeah, there's this thing that you want to protect your identity, but also the desire to, assert, sorry, protect your privacy, but the desire to assert your identity is far stronger. With young people, I think that's massive. And you look at things like, I don't know, chat roulette and 4chan. And although there are aspects of anonymity in there, it's also very much the data is there, who you are. So all this is building up, and they don't seem to care. No one, well, very few people who are young care. On Facebook, there was a Terms of Service Agreement, become a fan, find out what was going on about your data. Not that many people are really interested. It's just boring to most people. How do you change that entrenched mentality? And the second thing that goes along with that is MySpace is now a dinosaur all that data on there, it's there. All the kids seem to have moved on and forgotten about it. What's going to happen? How do you make people realize that they need to be a little more cautious yet not stop the excitement? Well, you can't stop the excitement.
4: Well, there are a couple of of, uh, considerations here. First of all, one of the reasons why not many people, not many young people care right now is because the phenomenon is too young. Five years ago, Facebook didn't didn't exist, Uh, which means that all this uh, problematic and all this thinking is very, very fresh. And we haven't really... Uh, answered many questions, but particularly there there haven't been really many individual and group consequences yet. Uh, Those who started using Facebook three years ago, uh, and they were 15, in three years' time they will actually start getting into real jobs, and in five years' time they will start getting into their second job and maybe a promotion, and uh, then things get tricky, uh, get tricky because stuff that you posted six years ago, you don't want to see it anymore, and you want it to be there anymore. And that's part of the story. Uh, The biggest part is uh, there is this idea that uh, if you cannot control the conversation, you should add to it and you should make it better. Uh, so, if somebody is posting stuff that you don't want to be found uh, with a Google search, you need to post your own stuff, so it comes out first in, in the reply. The paradox in this is that in order to fight information, you need to provide even more information and to do it in a very active way, uh, so that you know your blog and your site will come up number one and number two, and the rest will be on page three of Google, and nobody will find it anymore. Uh, but the reality is. Uh, we do publish a lot, but other people publish a lot about us as well. So we control our profile, and we don't control what others do uh, uh, about us. Uh, Facebook is interesting because uh, uh, you, know, you may choose not to publish any picture about uh, of you except one, and then suddenly they start popping up here and there because others take pictures and tag them with your name and, and post them in, on their profiles. And, of course, you can untag them so they're not easily, easy to find, but uh, they're still there. Uh, and they will remain there, and they are somewhere in a database. Uh, the MySpace case is interesting. You're right, it's a dinosaur and it's going to die. Uh, and, um, and all the information is around, and all the information will be bought by someone. Someone at a certain point will just buy MySpace and integrate that into another set of databases, linking data that were originally separated, so enhancing the profile of people and so on. Uh, what will happen in the short term? No idea. What will happen in the long term probably is that some of the information we will... Resurface at a certain point and be embarrassing for many people.
0: Yes, I think the, the consequences point is, is important. I was told by somebody at uh, Columbia University that they now check uh, applicants' Facebook profiles. And, you uh, know, when I told uh, my, uh, you know, kids who uh, – my stepchildren who are applying to university at the moment about this, they, you know, they went pale. <laughs> and it made them think for the first time about the consequences. I actually don't think that they
4: only check profiles. I think they copy profiles. For example, big companies that are big employers in a region, they actually actively copy profiles from students in the local schools and colleges uh, because they know that the students may delete some of the pictures when they go for a job interview, but
1: they still have copies, right? So the question I asked was, whose IP is it, yours or theirs? And what did you do to give it to them? And did you know you'd given it to them? That's the issue. Mm,
2: no. I think another issue is just also that, that people's identity and status is, is now bound up with the culture of sharing. Because in order to get status online in social networks, you have to share information. That's your currency. You, you, you bring information to the party, if you like, and that's what you trade with. It's your social currency. So in a sense, the, the system itself encourages people to constantly share more and more information and find things that, that have social value. And I think, as Bruno says, it, you know, it does create this sort of escalating arms race of personal information if you want to start looking at what ser- shows up in search rankings and so on.
0: Okay, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'll take a final contribution from the floor.
9: So, so, so what I'm hearing is that there is the potential, um, certainly in some situations, for some form of um, global digital anarchy. It could manifest itself in all sorts of different ways. So really coming back to what you were saying, Derek, earlier on, uh, what sort of institutional response is there going to be to put some sort of control back into this? And it, it has to be on a global basis. You know, going through the European courts, well, that's all very interesting, but um, that may be completely not a waste of time. So you talk about the global institutions that have been in place for other purposes in the past, um, of which World Bank, IFC, etc., UN... But, you know, how could you possibly get any sort of coordinated um, effort to try and control the potential for anarchy, uh, all sorts of anarchies in this space, in the current environment where global governments can't seem to be able to uh, agree on just about anything?
0: Derek, before you answer that, just going to take one more contribution from the back of the room.
9: Neil Stewart
5: from uh, Policy Review. On Monday and Tuesday of this week, I was organising the two-day serious and organised crime agencies uh, conference, who was looking at exactly this kind of issue. Um, I'm slightly more optimistic. I don't fall for this thing that because companies like Google and others are global, therefore the nation state can't get them. Uh, The nation state will get them as soon as they set foot in Germany or Iceland or somewhere else. I'm more optimistic. I think what the problem we've got is that, uh, and Derek's gallop through the ages... Uh, showed that it's taken us 400 years to reach the kind of settlement and social norms that we got to by about 2000. We're now having to reinvent it. We're having to discover what are the new forms of harm and loss. Somebody could leave this room having stolen some bits of Martin's data, but you wouldn't be quite sure what to do about it. But if you steal the spoons, the law is absolutely clear, and you know that if you're caught, you'll be humiliated and your reputation will be destroyed – and eventually, there will be the traumas like the autistic boy that will teach society where the boundaries are. And the law enforcement agencies will discover how to catch people. Now, what the cops were saying, which was really interesting, is that you need to remember that they've never been able to catch more than 4 or 5% of the people who were doing wrong and cheating in society anyway. What some of them were saying is that because of data, they now m- know more than ever before who's actually nicking things and doing things to you, but they're still trying to figure out how to prosecute them. So life as a crook and a cheater has also become much harder. So I'm a bit more optimistic. It's just that we're going through this period when we don't know what the norms of behaviour are and what the borderlines are, and we haven't had enough of the symbolic cases. Uh, but it is the case that you know, we all have to live somewhere in the world. Unless you want to live in an island, never go to the United States, never go to Germany... And one last bit, the big companies think they're masters of the universe, but they all live by margins. And if the Germans have the power to turn off your German market, then you're going to pay attention to German law. And it's that leverage that the lawmakers and others are beginning to figure out how to use. So I'm a bit more optimistic, I'm not so pessimistic but I do hate the way that Generation X behave with their own data. (laughs) Okay,
0: um, a brief responses from uh, Derek first, uh, Bruno, and then uh, Andy and Martin. Well, the first
1: thing is that America will not sign international treaties. So you have the the richest power in the world not prepared to be a global citizen. Well, I don't know how you resolve that. That is just impossible. Every meeting we go to, before we even get down to the nitty-gritty of any paragraphs or anything, they say, we're not signing this, whatever we agree. And that's their opening statement. So until America internationalizes itself. Now, while it doesn't do that, China will do it. So I just agreed last yesterday with Lord Patton. I think China's going at a gallop on this. And I think they'll create their own environment and ask you to become a partner with them. And you're either in or out. And it'll happen. And it'll happen very fast. And the West is just not aware of this. And, and therefore, they'll make their own rules on the net as they are now. Uh, and we are not with them. Uh, And there's no via media for us to go and have this conversation. If you keep bashing China all the time in the media, night and day, well, it's not the media. They're reporting the politicians bashing China. China will just go, well, you know, guys, we have $3 trillion of your money. We have all your bonds in Wall Street. And if we don't want to spend them, you keep having a recession. We're very happy. And we have not actually moved as citizens, either in Europe or in America, to understand the fundamental change that's happened in the last five years. So I'm not... I, I can't see a digital solution. I have proposed to the United Nations the rights of the child, which was started 20 years ago, should be re-examined so that they fit the net. So cyberbullying, all, all that you know, um, trafficking and everything, that should go in. And Ban Ki-moon has said he's going to re-examine that in that light. That's the beginning of getting a fundamental right on the net.
4: Uh, I totally agree with, with you, actually, on, on your remark. And the funny thing is you answered his question uh, because uh, uh, that's what's going to happen. We are at the beginning of a 25 years walk through a, a desert of uncertainty about uh, uh, reshaping social norms around this kind of these kind of issues, uh, and it will take, you know, there will be a lot of pain, individual pain uh, in, in specific cases, uh, and we'll need a lot of of, uh, of creativity. Uh, and in the meantime, the only real response is. Uh, not one from the state or from companies, but is one of individual prudence and, uh, and, and be careful about what you do with your with your data, uh, waiting until we get some sort of of, of new social contract in place for, uh, for this so that 's kind of the, the, the two sides of, 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 the, of the equation Andy.
2: I think the, the big problem is globalization sort of stops with politics, so that there isn 't you know compared to the economy and technology politics doesn 't really have an effective means of dealing with a globalized world. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I'd be nice if it would, but the problem is that technological development always um, massively precedes law. So there's always a a massive lag for law catching up with technology. And technology, the pace of of change is just accelerating. So I I can't actually see, I don't feel optimistic that 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 gap is going to close, as Neil suggested. Um, And I think... It is a very real problem at the moment is that we're, we're between two places. We've sort of left safe harbour where we've all, all these social conventions and, and norms legally, socially, culturally, economically that we've really known for the last uh, few hundred years. And they're falling away, but we don't know what's replacing them. And there's a possible question about whether or not we will know what's replacing them to the same, with the same certainties that our old systems used to be built so maybe the future is just going to be a, a much more ambiguous sense of you know constant uncertainty in which case we need new kinds of systems that are far more fluid and dynamic and, and, and policy needs to change fundamentally in the way that it's uh, it's built and shaped because the world isn't really going to slow down or or get any more fixed
3: Martin. Just briefly, I, I, I do hope that, that Neil is right, and I do hope that uh, the same, that we approach with the same inventiveness the solutions to the problems that have come from our inventiveness. Um, I, but I think that uh, the concern is that the same legislation that might close down uh, paedophile websites uh, might also be used to close down uh, freedom of information websites like this. I think there is a, there's a balance to be drawn there. But I think... What needs to happen as well is that we need to make a difference on a personal level, on an individual level. In the same way that we teach our children not to take sweets from strangers, Um, we need to teach them about the the, the personal responsibilities they have for the information they put out there. The charity that, um, the little plug here, the charity that I set up to try and get people back to work during the uh, during the recession, New Deal of the Mind, is currently working with the Roundhouse in London often described as um, you know, it's, a, it's a music venue but often described as, as North London's biggest youth club because they have kids going in there the whole time. We're going to be working with them on uh, a project to teach young people who are already very um, uh, able in this area and are using uh, the internet all the time to do their own projects, to treat what they're putting out there as their own personal archive to look at it in a more responsible manner and to recognize that what what they are creating is their own brand, a version of themselves that is likely to be there forever and to to show a little bit more respect for themselves in the way that they use it. So I think there are kind of individual, uh, personal, localized interventions that can be made.
0: I'd to thank all my panel for a very interesting discussion. We have to end there now because our next session starts at the town hall, very promptly uh, at uh, 9 o'clock, and I've been told by Julia to tell all of you uh, to make your way there uh, now. <laughs>